Thank you, Priya. All right. Um, we had a conversation with a friend yesterday. Um, uh, if you didn't see, we went. I took took the Jeep that I finally got put together. It's been in the driveway for months. Uh, took it off roading and and we went like three hours away. So we had a good three hour conversation on the way there and on the way back. And what happens when you have conversations with people? Eventually, you talk about pretty much everything in the world. Um, <laughs> And uh, at some point, we got to talking about movies, because I like movies. And, and uh, we both agreed that a, a good bad guy makes a good movie. A lot of people don't realize that. We want a hero in most movies, but the hero's only as good as the bad guy. You, have you all ever seen that? The hero's only as good as, as the bad guy. And what we found out when we started talking about it was, not only do you need a really, because we've seen movies and shows, TV shows and series that, that have bad guys, and they're not very convincing, right? And so it's, it, it just leaves something to be desired there. And, what we found out also is some of the more popular movies that people love have really good bad guys, if that makes any sense. They're, they're really good at being bad. But also what makes it even better a lot of times is when you can relate to the bad guy. And that's a little odd. We don't justify usually what the bad guy's doing in the movie, but there's usually a reason why they're bad, and we want to know what that is. We desire something, right? When we, when we hear a tragedy or something, we want to know, well, why did they do this? What drove them to do something bad? And in movies, we see the same thing. What what caused this person to be bad and to, to be the bad guy in the movie. We get the hero is trying to, trying to save everybody and they're sacrificial and we understand that, but the, the bad guy, we, we can't quite get a grip on why the bad guy's bad and we wanna know that. And I think there's very natural God-given desire of, of, of redemption and reconciliation in that, that when we, when we can finally get a glimpse of why the bad guy, and usually it's, it's kind of part of the, the climactic part of the movie, you realize why the bad guy's bad, right? And, uh, and you go, oh, okay, you, you feel a sense of relief almost, like, okay, I see why he's bad. It doesn't mean that it's okay to be bad, but I see why he's the bad guy. Does that make any sense at all? Am I making any sense? I hope so. Um, thank you. <laughs> so uh, one, of, one of my favorite movies is kind of odd because there's a lot of really good movies out there, and this usually isn't the top of those lists, but there's a reason, and I didn't discover the reason until I started studying this and looking at the whole good guy, bad guy thing. How many of you in here have seen I Am Legend with Will Smith? Anybody? A lot, pretty good bit of you. Okay. First time I watched it, I thought it was an awesome movie. I was like, oh, this is cool. You know, if you haven't seen it, I'll give you the premise real quick. It's uh, Will Smith is supposed to be the, like the last guy on earth. There's, they were trying to cure a disease, cancer or something, and everybody turned into zombies, which are actually, I think, vampires from the original book. But they turn into these monsters that can't come out during the day. They can only come out at night. Okay. So Will Smith is, is still, he's the doctor that, that is trying to fix them, right? He, he still has hope that he can change them back into normal people because they're like beasts and they only come out at night kind of thing. Well, how many of you know that there were two endings? Does anybody know there were two endings to that movie? Okay, a few of you. All right, this is one of my soapbox speeches I give everybody about this movie, but uh, they switched the ending, they call it the alternate ending, but it's really the original ending so that they could have a sequel or something and it ruined the whole movie. I didn't know that until a couple years later. Well, the original ending actually makes so much more sense and hopefully I can tie into this message. Um, I, I really believe I can if I have time. Um, what happens in the original film, he tries to do this and he ends up finding this lady and, huh? Spoiler alert, Mark would kill me if he knew I was doing this. <laughs> but I don't care. No, I don't care. People can know. It's, it's worth it because it's a greater good. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm going with. And most of you have seen it. So. If you're listening to this podcast, sorry, not sorry. You're gonna get the you're gonna get the spoiler, but 
if you're listening to this podcast, find the good version, the alternate, air quotes, alternate ending, um, which is the original ending. Okay, so Will Smith is, and you relate to him because you're like, last guy on earth, you know, this is wild, and he finds this, this lady and her, and, um, and her kid, and anyway, she keeps telling him there is a God, and he's like, no, there's no God, these are beasts, they can't think, they can't do anything. Well, if you follow the film, they can because they end up trapping him, and they're like, okay, well, they are intelligent. Um, they're not just beasts. Anyway, so um, throughout the whole film, uh, until you understand the, the new ending, you just feel like it's, that's what's going on. These guys are bad. He's the good guy, right? These are dark people. They live in dark. He lives in light. There's this whole dark versus light thing, and so it's pretty surfacey. And you're like, cool movie. It's intense. Good film. Good acting. You know, he's stressed out. He's all by himself. He's got a dog as a companion. So anyway, so you go through the whole film, knowing this at the very end, um, he ends up. I think he ends up dying. Yeah, he like has a grenade and ends up dying. The the, the wrong ending. Um, and it doesn't make any sense at all. I'm like, well, that was dumb. That was kind of a dumb ending. Well, the, the real ending, um, at the very end, instead of him dying, there's this, I am ruining this for you, but you'll enjoy the movie more. There's this theme of a butterfly throughout the whole movie that keeps popping up. It's on the refrigerators and a couple places to so look for that if you watch it again. Um, so there's this theme of this butterfly. Um, his daughter like had a butterfly. And there's all these little themes of butterflies. But the very end, and I love a good story too, the very end, um, the biggest, baddest one of these you know, vampire beast zombie guys is finally finds him and is there's this big plexiglass wall between them and he's trying to fix one of these zombie vampire things and uh, this guy's like trying to get in and all his guys are in there coming to kill him, you know, it's, this is the, the, the climax of the movie and finally the guy makes a butterfly thing on the clear glass and then Will Smith looks over and it's the beast guy's wife is who he's trying to fix and she has a butterfly tattoo and then he looks at the wall and he sees all the people he's tried to fix that he's killed. He's essentially gone into their darkness and drugged them out and killed them. <laughs> and so the, the movie premise a bit is more that, that Will Smith is the legend. Will Smith is the bad guy. And these guys are the good guys. And it, tw it turns the whole movie on its head. I know, it's crazy, right? It turns the whole movie on its head. He's the, he's the bad guy. But here's the thing. He's really not because he's trying to help them, right? This is, what, this is what really messed me up when I started looking at it in the context of what I was studying. We want so badly to have a bad guy. We want there to be a bad guy. What happens is he realizes what he's done, and he feels bad about it. I think he begins to cry, and he opens the door, and all these guys are after him to kill him. He opens the door, and he unhooks the, the female and, and brings her out to him, who is her husband, I guess, and this guy, like, screams at him, like, ah, but he doesn't hurt him, and he holds all the other ones back from him, from hurting him, and he, he gives back the, the woman to, the, to them. And they, they, there's no, and that's what I like good acting. There's no, nobody says anything, but you see, you see, you feel what's going on. They're recognizing that they, they both were trying to do the right thing, and they both saw each other as enemies, and they weren't really. They both were trying to fix each other, and it's an amazing movie now. Like it's so much, like it was a cool movie at first, just because of the, you know, the scene like New York and you know apocalyptic and everything. But now it's like, wow, this is incredible. And so what I found in in looking at that is. We want so badly to find an enemy, right? We want so badly for there to be a bad guy, and we do that in life as well. And when I read through Scripture, it's easy for us to pick out through Scripture, especially when Jesus was on earth, who the bad guys were. Can anybody guess? Pharisees, right? Bad guys. Can you toss my water, Trace? Pharisees are bad guys, right? Jesus called them brood of vipers. He called them blind. Basically, basically just chewed them out and, and criticized them a lot. I'm not going to sugar that down, or sugar it down, water it down, sugarcoat it, water, sugar, 
sugarcoat it down with water. I'm not going to do that. Because <laughs> I don't even know what that is. I'm not going to just bypass that to make a point, essentially. He did. He, he said some pretty rough things to him. But here's what I found as I began to, to read through Scripture. Jesus loved the Pharisees. He absolutely loved the Pharisees. Let that sink in a minute. It's easy for us to say Jesus loves sinners, right? He ate with tax collectors, with crooks, with gangsters, with sinners, and he was criticized by the Pharisees for it. We can accept that, especially in our modern-day church, church atmospheres. We can accept that. We can accept that Jesus loved sinners. It's pretty blatant. But we, we compartmentalize what sinners are. Sinners look a certain way and dress a certain way and act a certain way, right? We have that in the back of our heads. This is what sinners look like, and we need to fight for them. I'm not saying we don't, but, but we need to understand the whole story here. And this, this kind of all sparked from Wednesday night in youth. I've been up there with Brian, and Brian's an awesome youth pastor and has been up there teaching these kids. And I've been up there to, to substitute while he was out of town with work, too, and then help him in some of the areas. But this kind of popped into my head last week. I wanted to talk about kingdom this week, but this, is, this has been really just deep in the spirit with me. And I really feel like we need to see it, especially in our grace culture. We need to see it clearly. Um, Luke 14, I'll be in NIV most of the time till the end, if I even make it to the end. Um, Luke 14, um, NIV version, verse 1, it says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. So he's not just eating in the houses of, of sinners, he's eating in the houses of Pharisees too. He was being carefully watched. Um, there in front of him was a man suffering from an abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? <laughs> Jesus is also funny um, and clever, but they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Verse 5, then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull, pull it out? And they had nothing to say. What was Jesus doing here? He's trying to teach them, right? He's in their house. He's having a meal just like he does with sinners. He's with Pharisees doing the exact same thing. Jesus didn't change for anybody. He did the same thing all the time. He loved everyone. He said, look, let me ask you a question. How would you deal with this situation? He's teaching Pharisees in a Pharisee's house. Verse 7, when he noticed how the guests picked pick the places of honor um, at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have, may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both, you, both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, <laughs> you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all, all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to, to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The, the next, if, if you've been here more than a minute, I always tell you to scratch out the headings in your Bible and put it's all about Jesus. Do that with this one too. Um, it's all about Jesus. I said, my, my Bible says the parable of the great banquet. Jesus says the great banquet, so it's all about Jesus again. Verse 15, when 
When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And I think Jesus is going, come on, guys. Think about who's at the table with him. These are Pharisees, right? So Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent a servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. Um, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another one said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Uh, still another one said, I got married, so I can't come. Um, basically, all of these, I don't want to get into too much de- detail. Basically, they had made light of the, the banquet. We'll, I'll try to skip ahead. They, just, they weren't that concerned with what was going on with, with the banquet. And so they had just made other plans. I'm not going to try to overthink that because that's all he's talking about. Verse 21, the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Do you see a pattern here? Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. And the master told the servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them all to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now think about this. Who is he talking to here? He's talking to Pharisees. He's teaching Pharisees. He wants them to see. He's, he's trying to show them that he is the one that they need to be focused on, not everything else, not to be distracted by everything that they were distracted with. That's all he's saying. And he's saying, listen, I'm trying to warn you. You won't, you won't have a part in me if you don't see how important everything that's going on right in front of you is. I want you to be a part of it, but you're not if you don't see what's going on. If you continue to, to, to do what you're doing, you're not seeing what's actually happening here. All right, we're going we're gonna to jump to Matthew 9.10. We're still in IV here. Uh, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Listen, everywhere Jesus went, he... There was a mixed crowd, right? And it said earlier that he was being watched closely. Most of the Pharisees were watching him closely because they wanted to to get rid of him because he was messing up their business big time. They had a pretty good racket going. He ended up turning tables over the whole thing. But they had a pretty good racket where they were robbing people a lot, and they were very wealthy, and it was a whole broken system. And so Jesus knew that the disciples were listening, and he said, listen, go and learn what it means that is our mercy over sacrifice. Obviously, they didn't listen. Because later on in, the, in Matthew, Matthew 12, 1, it says, um, at this time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. He began to pick some heads of grain. Basically, he, he fed his disciples when he shouldn't have fed them. Um, and the, the Pharisees said, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. So uh, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to uh, verse 6. Uh, he says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Um, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's once again highlighting himself of, what's, of, of the most important thing that's going on. And he's saying, listen, if you would have just listened to me when I told you before, I desire mercy over sacrifice, you wouldn't be coming back to me and accusing me of something again. Because the Pharisees should have known that in Hosea, what he was quoting was, God was saying, I desire, I desire mercy, I desire you to care for people over the sacrificial system. Don't bring me burnt offerings if you're not going to love people and care for people because I'm not worried about this whole 
systematic religious system that you're based on. I want you to, I want you to, to care for the widows and the poor and the orphans and the needy, and you're not doing that. You're caught up in the rituals of coming up here and being showy, talking about all the money that you're giving and everything that you're doing in the church, and you're not caring for people. I desire you to have mercy over sacrifice. That's what he's talking about. So he knew that the disciples would, or not the disciples, well, they should know it too, but um, that the Pharisees, which he had Pharisees as disciples too, he said, you should know that, that I desire mercy over sacrifice. If you had gone and studied it, you wouldn't be attacking me again. You should know this stuff. I'm telling you in a way that you can understand it. He didn't, he didn't approach them like he approached uh, the hurting or the poor or the Gentiles because they wouldn't have received it that way. He's telling them in a way that they can understand it. So they would have known it's Hosea 6, 6, if you want to look at it. It says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, a knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He wants you to know God and know God's heart over just a system that you think you can gain merit over and through. Mark 12, 38 says, uh, this is Jesus' teaching. He says, watch out for the teachers of the law. They, they like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. Does this sound familiar? He just talked about this. They like to have the most important seats at the synagogues, the places of honor at the banquets. Listen to this. This is key. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. And it goes on in verse 41. This is one of the most <laughs> interestingly kind of misinterpreted scriptures here that people use to try to twist people's arm to give offerings. And it's not what it's talking about at all. Verse 41 says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were, were being put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor woman came and put two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow, this is key words here. He just got finished talking about a widow, didn't he? This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty and put it in everything all she had to live on. Now think of this in the context of what he's talking about here. He just said in verse 40, be careful these, these rich people that come in here, these Pharisees that come in here and make a big showing of them giving things. They're wealthy, and this poor woman has given everything she had, and they're so caught up in their ritualistic system that they don't take care of the widow because she doesn't have anything. We want to we praise the widow for giving everything she has in faith, but there's nothing wrong with that. That's not what it says. It doesn't say anything about that here. What it says before it is, be careful because don't be like the Pharisees that come in here and make a big showing of everything that they do and give all this money when there's a widow standing here that needs money and they need to be taking care of her. This is why we, we always talk about Jesus as our tithe. If giving's not from the heart, if you're doing it out of a, out of a merit system, then you're doing it in self-righteousness and thinking that you can gain something that Jesus couldn't gain for you and, and therefore negating the cross, which is the absolute worst thing you could do. We're not gaining something because we give. We give because Christ gave to us. It's a, very, it's a very natural thing for us to find our identity in Christ and for his Holy Spirit to compel us to give. It's, it's a byproduct of it. The closer, the closer that you, you have an understanding of who you are in Christ, the more freely you'll be able to give because your, your security and your, um, and your identity is not tied up in money or things. Because what's, what's, what's the goal of the Christian is restored relationship. When you begin to see how important relationships are, money's not nearly as big of a deal. I'd rather have more relationships. That's where my houses are. That's where my treasures are. So he's saying, listen, <laughs> these guys are devouring widows' houses because they, they're showing how much money they can give to the church. Look how much money I can give to the church. And this poor widow has two cents. Or I think it was equivalent of a penny, maybe. She has, barely, she has nothing. 
these guys are so caught up in their system that they can't even help the widow. Do you see what's messed up here? It's, it's a messed up system. And he wants, the, he wants his disciples to see it, and he wants the Pharisees to see it. This is not my heart. This is not the heart of God. Jesus said constantly, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only do what he asks me to do. I walk hand in hand with him all the time. And what I see him do, I do. Don't do like the Pharisees do. And I don't want the Pharisees to do like the Pharisees do. <laughs> Why y'all like this? <laughs> Stop it. You put burdens on people that cripple them, and you yourself can't even hold them. I just skipped ahead a little bit. So he desires mercy over sacrifice. He, he, he wanted them to be loving and caring and helping the widow from their wealth instead of placing heavier burdens on them to say, you need to come and give money. You, you need to come and give your money or you're not righteous or you're not holy or you're not good because you're not giving money. You need to come give your money when they should have been the ones that given the widow money to help her because that's God's heart because he desires mercy over sacrifice. He desires the mercy of the, of the heart of God over the sacrificial system that was about to be obliterated when Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for us all. <clears throat> Matthew 23, 1 says, And Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. <laughs> so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy and cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries, which is basically a, a Torah fanny pack, <laughs> basically a thing that held a lot, of Torah, a lot of the Torah, lots of scribes, lots of scriptures from, uh, from the Torah. That's just a really long word for that, phylacteries. Their, <laughs> their phylacteries are wide and their tassels on their garments are long. They love, they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. Do you see it? They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and, the, and, and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. Listen to this, this is key. You are all brothers and do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be, to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Listen, his message wasn't different to to the Gentiles or the Jews or the Pharisees or the tax collectors or the gangsters. His message was the same to everybody. Humble yourself and you'll be exalted. Exalt yourself and you'll be humbled. The Pharisees needed to hear this more than anybody, obviously, because they, they grabbed the seat of Moses and started putting people in different places and they wanted to, to make sure that you knew that they were in charge. And they put burdens on people that they themselves couldn't even carry. I have several, but we're going to look. We may have time to look at two. Look at two Pharisees um, that were radically changed. The first one is pretty obvious. This was Nicodemus. I like to call him Nick at night because <laughs> he met with Jesus on, down some dark alley where some of the super Christians wouldn't be caught dead in a dark alley somewhere meeting with, with a religious person. Um, do you remember the whole conversation, born again thing? And <laughs> Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. I have to go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus is like, no. <laughs> it's not that complicated. Let me explain it again. And so he, he, he explains how to be born again, that you're a new creation. He explains this all to him. Well, something happened in Nick, um, obviously, because later on in, in uh, John seven fifty one, uh, he defends Jesus. Verse 50 says, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and saw uh, one of their own number, asked, 
does our law condemn a man without first hearing him out? Basically, he's defending amongst all the other Pharisees. Nicodemus is defending Jesus there. Um, and he goes on in, in John 19 to bring 75 pounds of a mixture of myrrh and aloes to, to, to give to the body, to um, not give to the body, what do you call it? Embalm, yeah, like the embalming stuff. He brings the, his, his own stuff to, to be there with Jesus. And so something happens to Nicodemus that changes him forever. And I'm not getting into a ton of details there, but Nicodemus was changed by Jesus, and he was obviously a Pharisee. One of the greatest Pharisees that was changed that will hang out for just a little bit um, was a guy named Saul. Now, contrary to popular belief, Saul didn't change his... Paul wasn't a new name for Saul. Saul had both of those names. Paul was his Roman name. Um, but he did, he did start going by that uh, after his... his lightning road to Damascus. Paul was an absolute terrorist of Christians. He murdered them. Um, he went after them. He was, he, was, um, he was there when Stephen was stoned. He, he persecuted everyone that was called of the way. Any Christians he persecuted, he was an absolute Christian killer. I mean, that's what he did. Um, he, he himself said he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, in Acts 23, he says, I'm a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. Acts 26 says, I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. Philippians 3.5 says, he's circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. He's, there's no doubt that he was a Pharisee. Did Jesus love Paul? He loved him. Um, so much so that he, he lit him up. <laughs> he demonstrated how much he loved him. He wanted to see in a radical way how much he loved him. And Paul ended up writing most of the New Testament, the 13, letter, the 13 letters, all the epistles. Paul wrote uh, most of what we understand clearly about grace today. Paul did it, a Pharisee. It's interesting that in our, especially in our community of other, other grace preachers and churches, how quickly, I want to be careful with this because I'm not trying to condemn anybody in here, but I'm just as guilty as you guys of us condemning a lot of law-based teaching in other churches that are preaching a different way than we do. We need to be careful with that because we will in turn turn ourselves into Pharisees saying that we, although we understand the same way Jesus did, that, that they, will, they will bind up people and then they will put people on people. They will put people on people. Listen to me. They will put things on people's shoulders that they themselves can't hold, that they can't carry. Yeah, we, we need to see that. I'm not saying we don't need to see it and call it out for what it is, but we need to love those people just as much. Any of you guys seen The Father of Lights? It's a good movie. You should check it out if you haven't seen it. There's one, there's one part where they were going out to witness to people and... and um, prophesied to people of California along the boardwalk, and they realized that um, just something wasn't working out. It was something like there was like a block there in the spirit. And they get to the end, and there are these picketers that are basically very condemning, talking about, you know, all you guys are going to hell, you know, um, just just really mean stuff, just picketers being jerks, essentially. But what the guys there that went out there to, to bless people realized was, okay, maybe the Lord's, and this is another thing of being aware of the Holy Spirit, they were aware of the Holy Spirit had shifted. They weren't out there. I think they were going to like an interpret tattoos or something. So they're like, I mean, they're ready, man. They're ready to go out there and do something radical for the Lord. And the Lord shifts what they're there for. And they say, no, you're there to love these people, these picketers. What? What? <laughs> and they say, okay, whether we like it or not, Jesus loves these people too. As hateful as they are, Jesus loves these people. And they go to them, and instead of, instead of combating them or fighting with them, they pray for them. Wow. That's a tough pill to swallow for some of us. For me, it is. They love them. <clears throat> Listen, when we start, when we stop looking for the bad guy, 
and we see people that in their own minds, in their own hearts, are doing, they think they're doing the right thing. I, I think, I think that, that, that some of these people that we certainly oppose theologically, in their hearts they think they're doing the right thing. They want people to know the Lord. Whether we see it or not, they want people to know the Lord. You can get all the way into politics with this, Democrats, um, Republicans, whatever, Obama, Obama Trump, wh- whatever. We can look at enemies. We can think that these people want to destroy America. We can think, well, no, they, they don't. They just do it. They're trying to do it a different way than we, than we would like them to do it. In the same way, these people are doing it in a way that we don't agree with. And that's okay. I'm not saying there can't be conflicts. What we talked about last week, conflict should bring you closer to each other if you're willing to accept it and love each other through it. If you're not, then you won't have any deep and meaningful relationships. You'll surround yourself with people that agree with you and think like you, and, and you'll be pretty flaky. Sorry. Not sorry. I'm just saying, conflict will, will draw people closer together in love if you truly... Because how... Listen to this. I'm getting off topic a little bit. How... how well, maybe on topic. <laughs> how can we learn to forgive if we don't allow people to offend us or to, 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 uh, to have some conflict in relationship? How will we learn to see people the way that Jesus sees people when he saw it all the time? How can we love people that, um, that hate us, that persecute us? Listen... You're not persecuted like Paul was persecuted. Sorry. You think, you think it's bad because of, of, of social media or somebody said something mean to you or picketers or something? Listen, you're not being hung upside down and crucified. I'm not trying to make light of it, but I'm saying we have to see that the, the barrier that's between us and who we think are our enemies is not, should not be there. Should not be there. We should not be looking at our enemies as people. That's not our, that's not our enemies. Jesus did it when he said... They thought he should come in on a white horse and, and, and you know, make the God's chosen people the new geopolitical leader. And he showed up in a manger and then rode a donkey. He said, you don't know who your enemies are. Your enemies are sin, death, and hell, and I'm going to defeat them. We should have that same mindset. Your enemies aren't people. <coughs> Even the people that look a whole lot like your enemy. They may talk like your enemies. They may act like your enemies. Those people need Jesus as much as you do. And it's easy for us to see the ones that we think look like and act like and smell like <laughs> sinners. But we'll be the first ones to, to throw a stone at a Pharisee or at a religious person. I'm there with you, man. I'm not trying to tell this to you guys. It's hard. It's hard, especially if you've been a recipient of it. I say all the time, we're probably 70, 80 percent maybe even more than that, church full of people that have been hurt by churches or by church systems. And I understand it, and I'm not making light of it, but I'm telling you, we are maturing in our church, and you guys are maturing in a way that I think we need to start seeing everyone the same way that way, that we need to see even those religious people that way, that we can can begin to forgive them and love them in a way that, that is supernatural because it's the only way we can do it. Listen, after Paul's conversion, he spent time in Arabia, Damascus, Jerusalem, Syria, um, and Barnabas even enlisted him to teach those in the church of Antioch. Here's what's funny about that. (laughs) These were the Christians that were driven out of Judea by the persecution that arose after Stephen's death founded. (laughs) founded, That's what founded this multicultural church. So Paul was there approving the stoning of Stephen. They're scattered, and now there's this multicultural church, and now he's called on to go minister to them. Think about that. Let that sink in. 
This was Paul uh, understanding how important it was to see this um, and how he, he was a Pharisee that was absolutely transformed um, in, a, in such a radical way. that he counts everything that he lived for before. And this is something I want to, I want to kind of preface this with. Um, I've had conversations with a few of you guys about this. When you have conversations with people that are caught up in, in legalism and caught up in, um, in a law-based, merit-based system, be patient with them. Love them just like you love everybody else because you were requiring of them to give up their identity. You're requiring them to give up their belief system by which they make decisions in their life and you're requiring them to change. You're, you're moving their cheese. <laughs> and, and that's a big deal. Your belie- what you believe shifts and changes your whole life. And when you come up to somebody and say, you're wrong and I'm right, you should expect some, some resistance because that's a very immature way to reach people. It's not based in relationship. Take your time with people like that, especially people like that. Don't argue so much and just love them. And talk to them, have conversations. Philippians 3.2, Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, talking about circumcision. He says, we are, we are the circumcision. Like, Paul got it, man. Paul got it like nobody got it. He was like, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Zero. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has, <laughs> has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I love his boldness too. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of this surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish. I'm not going to tell you what that word rubbish really means. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, become like him in his death, and by, and by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Listen, um, we've been talking about in youth loving our enemies and blessing those that persecute us. We, we want, and I want to pray for the young people over in Children's Church too, we want to raise the young people in our church all the way up to see people not as their enemies and not to see people as though they need to um, defend, their, defend themselves as though they don't have a solid foundation in Christ as though they have to find their identity by other people's opinions of them. We want to build up strong young people that know who they are in Christ and can bless people and are not bouncing around by other people's versions of their reality. And so when we talk about blessing people that curse us, especially in youth with our young people, um, you can see the shift in there. And it's amazing, and I've missed that. I've been out of youth for a while, and I've missed seeing some of those kids, the light come on. Wait a minute. This is different than, than what I see in my culture at my school. And it's very radical for them to think outside of the box where they can, they can look past offense and begin to love people in a way that Christ loves them. Listen, I said it last week too, you can't take prayer out of church if there's kids in there that carry the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you, you're not kicking the Holy Spirit out. You can't arrest the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Good luck. 
you'd be throwing handcuffs in the air, I guess. But where are you going to do that? Our kids can can change lives, and we we tell them constantly too. Listen, the kid the kid that's been cast out, that's the one we reach out to. We want to we want to talk to them. We want to get to know them. We want to meet them in a place where their lives are changed. That can change our whole culture, our whole the whole school can shift from 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 loving one person. We can avoid tragedy from loving one per- one person. I don't want to chase that too far. Matthew 5.43, this is the one in the message, and I'll wrap up with this. I actually did get to the end. I kind of rushed through, but um, Matthew 5.43-47 says, You're familiar with the old written law. Love your friend and its unwritten companion. Hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. <laughs> I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. For then you are working out your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the, the, if all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? <laughs> Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. That's two words. Your kingdom, your kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. Listen, our real enemy is the spirit of the Antichrist. And the Antichrist isn't Hitler. The Antichrist isn't some person. It's the spirit of the Antichrist. It's not truly loving people like Christ loves people. Your enemy is Antichrist. Your enemy is a spirit that says you can't love people like Christ loves you. That's your real enemy. Your real enemy is just full of lies. Like Renee said, a a toothless lion. Is that what she said? It's a toothless lion. Uh, Bill Johnson says it's like a branch that's been broken off. It looks alive, but Satan's dead. He just doesn't know it yet. (laughs) It It may look intimidating, but we don't have fear because we know where we stand. We understand that we don't have to respond to people's evil with evil. Grow up. (laughs) This is a mature Christian. A mature Christian sees people not as enemies, but sees people as converts that just aren't converted yet. And and let me back up, not just converts, because we're not just trying to mark off a list of people that we can convert to be like us. We see people in their true identity, just like it was saying. We see people how Christ sees people in the way that they were created to be. And so we call out that true identity in them. And when they begin to see it, they begin to realize that we can step back and watch them grow. And we don't have to build all these barriers around them. We build a relationship with them, and we learn from one another. And there's, there's conflict, and there's, there's struggles, and there's, there's, there's an ebb and flow to relationship that builds it stronger and stronger when we love each other through the good times and the bad times. And we mature, and we don't put it off because we go, okay, well, they don't agree with me, or they offended me, so now we're not friends anymore. Or, or even new people that we meet, I know this person's stance on this issue, so now I can't be friends with them. Be careful with that. You could have some of the richest relationships with some of the most opposite people that you ever could imagine. The, Be careful. I'm not saying it's bad because I I have friends with similar interests and it's easy to be friends with similar interests. That's fine. I'm not saying that's bad. 
be careful thinking that you can only be friends that have, sim that have similar interests. This is where I'm careful with small groups that, that flourish because we have to find some balance there because then they, they can turn into excluding cliques. We don't want to do that either. So there's, there is, the only, the only cure for that is, is relationship outside of our own paradigm, outside of our own uh, um, yeah, I don't want to call it a comfort zone necessarily because that can be twisted a bit. I'm not telling you you just need to be uncomfortable all the time. Don't, don't make yourself miserable hanging out with people that you, know, you don't have anything in common with. I'm not saying that. But there's, yeah, op open yourselves up to see other people's perspectives because when you do, you'll find out that you have more similar similarities than you thought because we're all created in the likeness of God, so our characters will begin to mesh. It says right there, you're all brothers and sisters. Don't put yourself up in this seat. Put yourself in the lowest seat and serve one another. When you begin to serve him, oh, man, this is good. <laughs> Start serving some people. Not, not out of fear and obligation, but serve people out of love of Christ. When you serve people, you'll get to know them, and you'll get to know their hearts, and you'll get to know who they are and where they come from. You'll get to know their story. You'll get to know that the reason why they think the way they think or the viewpoint that they have comes from something, and you can begin to talk about it. And from that place, you can, you can both begin to grow. Listen, what will happen is... You may have the answer and they may need it. They may have the answer, you may need it. I'm not saying the grand answer, it could be, but it could just be something that you struggle with that you're like, I didn't understand this and they may have the answer for it. I don't wanna get, I'm not gonna try to get too tangled in that and we're already over a little bit. So stand up with me, I wanna pray for you guys. Um, be, be patient. Listen, one of the fruits of the Spirit's patience and it's one of the things that we struggle with. Um, Relationships take time. And I think God's timing is perfect. So if you if you are willing to listen to the Holy Spirit and walk with Him and talk with Him every day, when those divine appointments hit and you're you're, you know, without a doubt something's happening and you begin to speak to someone or you begin to do things, um, I, I'm I just I use Tracy's example because it's fresh on my mind, but um, Tracy's not a, a very outspoken or, or outgoing. She's more of a reserved person, more of an introvert. Um, but when 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 she can hear from the Holy Spirit uh, and and start being more bold, and and this is this is not a, a cookie cutter formula. I'm just telling you a, an example. When she can begin to hear the Holy Spirit speak to her to do something that is different than 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 is outside of her her um, paradigm and, and what she fully understands even, and she can begin to minister to people in that way. Listen, how awesome was that for Tracy as much as it was for them? Listen, when we begin to bless people and begin to serve people and love people, when the miracles happen, it, it splashes back on us. And I can't tell you how excited and how happy Tracy has been since last Sunday. And it's, it's not because she has some great power and she's running around throwing lightning bolts at people and healing everybody, <laughs> although she can if she wants to. Um, it's because she, she just simply listened to the Holy Spirit, did something, and something happened, and it's a good thing. It's a relationship thing. It's a win-win. There doesn't have to be a loser in this. There's not, there's, there's not an enemy that we have to defeat because God's already defeated him. So we run around in this, in this righteousness and this truth and this, and this holiness that Christ has given us, and we operate from that place, and it's win-win. There doesn't have to be a loser here. <laughs> we, we want more winners. <laughs> We're not pointing out losers. So, Father, um, I love you and I praise you. Father, I just point out those people in our lives when we leave this place, whether it's in the restaurant, whether it's um, 
in Walmart or, or Target or wherever it is, Lord. Um, show us what you want to do and how you want to do it within our families and our friends and, and even with strangers, Lord. Um, just demonstrate your kingdom in our lives every moment of every day. In Jesus' name, amen.